The first gospel reading is from the third chapter of Mark's gospel. Listen for God's word. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is vagabond. Jesus is Savior and body and comforter and shepherd and redeemer. And Jesus, so clearly in the Gospels, is disruptor. Our culture loves to pull the church into family values discussions. Jesus is pro-family. Faith and family are glued together. Then in Mark, Jesus' own family goes looking for him one day. And Jesus disrupts all their expectations by saying, who are my mother and my brothers? Then looking at the ragtag group of outsiders and misfits around him, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my family. Try preaching that on Mother's Day. I'm just saying. I think we would rather not think of Jesus as disruptor. In 1948, W.H. Auden became the first foreign-born poet to win the Pulitzer Prize. He did it for a volume called The Age of Anxiety, who had as its refrain, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. God is always seeking to find the loves, the loyalties, the causes, the agendas that we choose to hold more tightly than God. Jesus seeks to pry our clenched fists off every one of those good loyalties and to disrupt our lives straight into the arms of God. The thing is, though, God will comfort and support us. But that comfort rarely comes before disruption. God does not necessarily see the props that we use to keep our world of illusion spinning as helpful in creating faithful disciples. You name it. Relationships, priorities, vocation, money, values, imagination, families, loyalties, patriotism, happiness, sadness, our past, our spending, our health, our worship, achievement, success, individualism, authority. Jesus will uphold us only after Jesus disrupts every single corner of our life. Matthew Skinner of Luther Seminary has observed, if you're looking for snapshots of well-adjusted and happy parent-child relations in the ancient world, the Bible probably shouldn't be your first stop. Consider even Jesus' family. The New Testament preserves evidence suggesting that Jesus' relationship with his mother was rather strained. Earlier in Mark 3, verses before what I just read you, the Common English Bible records, when Jesus' family heard what was happening, they came to take control of him, saying, 
he's out of his mind. Christian tradition for 2,000 years has had a very difficult time coming to terms with Jesus' relationship to his family of origin. Consider what translators have done to that verse. In the King James Version, it totally removes Jesus' family from this part of the scene saying, when his friends heard of it, they went to lay hold of him saying he's beside himself. The New Revised Standard Version puts the disparagement of Jesus into the voice of others. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him for people were saying, Jesus has gone out of his mind. We're in really good company if we choose to ignore a Jesus who disrupts the most cherished relationships and loyalties we have. Family, though, isn't the only thing Jesus disrupts. The late Will Campbell was a Baptist minister and a pioneering civil rights crusader and author of one of the most beautiful and challenging books I've ever read, his memoir, Brother to a Dragonfly. In it, he recounts a time in the late 1960s when he was to be a speaker at a student conference consisting of young new left radicals of the time. Before he spoke, the conference viewed a documentary called The Ku Klux Klan, An Invisible Empire. It showed the horrors of the murder of the three civil rights workers in Mississippi. It showed the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, which killed the four little girls on their way to Sunday school. It took the viewer inside a Georgia Klan Clavern Hall where an initiation ceremony into the Klan was taking place. At one point, the candidates were all lined up kind of in, in military formation. Left face, somebody said, and everybody turned left in the line, except for one guy who got confused and turned right instead, and all got very mixed up, which brought to those who were watching this documentary cheers and jeers and catcalls and guffaws as they ridiculed the stupid Klan recruit on the screen. Campbell remembers, I felt a sickening in my stomach. Those viewing the film were alleged to be on the cutting edge of social change, black and white, women and men, who had been taking over campuses in recent months. They used words like establishment as if it were poison. Who were they to be beyond that? Most of them were from middle and upper class homes, they were students or recent graduates of the richest, most prestigious universities in the country. They were mean and tough, but somehow I had a sense there wasn't a radical in the group. For if they'd been radical, how could they laugh at a poor, uneducated farmer who didn't know his left from his right? If they'd been radical, they would have been weeping, wondering what produced him. After the film, it came time for uh, Campbell to give his speech and then to answer questions. He stood up and he said, my name is Will Campbell. I'm a Baptist minister. I'm a native of Mississippi. I'm pro-Klansman because I'm pro-human being. Now that's my speech. I'm happy to take questions. Well, he didn't even get the last sentence out before pandemonium broke loose in the hall. Blacks and whites alike were shouting at Campbell and storming from the hall. The next half hour was bedlam. It was one of the few times Campbell said he ever feared for his life. Finally, with just a few people left, 
he got people calmed down enough. He said, it took time to get my little band of radicals to settle down enough to point out to them that just four words uttered, pro-Klansman, Mississippi, Baptist preacher, and one image, white, had turned them into everything they thought the KKK to be, hostile, frustrated, angry, violent, frustrated. And I was never able, Campbell says, to explain to them that pro-Klansman is not the same thing as being pro-Klan. The first is about human beings. The second is about a toxic ideology. We have all in these past months in this country been surrounded by conversations about race. But whatever yours and my closely held opinions, convictions, certitude, or pain about race, you can be sure that right now Jesus is seeking to disrupt our settled minds and our sure opinions. Jesus seeks to disrupt every single corner of our life to lead us deeper and to help us feel what it's like to rely on resting in the arms of God. I think Jesus does that with depth perception. The writer Seth Godin is not a big fan of magazine racks. Stop for a minute to consider those magazines, he says, that stack up like fire firewood in the dentist's office or beckon you from the high-priced newsstand at the airport before you board a plane, the celebrity gossip self-improvement category, all the airbrushed pretty people, the replaceable celebrities and near celebrities, the mass market diet fads, the conventional stories, the sameness tailored for a mass audience. It's pretty seductive. If you can just fit in with all the ways these magazines are pushing you to fit in, then you'll be okay. You'll, you'll be all right. You'll be beyond criticism. Everyone should act like this, those magazines say. Dress like this. Talk like this. But this doesn't have to be you. These aren't cultural norms. They're just a bizarre sub-universe, a costume party for people unwilling to find their own voice. Jesus, every single day of his ministry, with every single person he encountered, said to them, this doesn't have to be you. God has something bigger for you. To the disciples, Jesus disrupted their lives so they could go deeper into God's call. To his family, Jesus disrupted their lives so they could see him as savior and not just as son or brother. To the crowds, Jesus disrupted their lives over and over again, speaking directly into their stuckness and despair. This doesn't have to be you. God has something bigger for you. Jesus relished disrupting the expected, the shallow, the predictable, the status quo, so that he could speak the indispensable word into a world of spiritual hunger and need. This doesn't have to be you. God has something bigger for you. Jesus pushed us deeply into depending on God instead of on ourselves, our family, our traditions, our loyalties. Jesus disrupted anything, even treasured and important things to us that got in the way of our utter and complete loyalty and dependence on God. 
This doesn't have to be you. And Jesus disrupts because he knew what we know. Life disrupts. We don't need to go out and seek a lot of disruption. Life, if we live long enough, has a way of turning our lives upside down. Is there anybody in this room that doesn't know that? And We have, when that happens, this crucial choice. Either we can see God present in the disruption, or we will spend our lives fighting and struggling and wrestling for a stability that will never happen. In the 1960s, the Second Vatican Council brought sweeping changes to every part of the Roman Catholic Church. These changes were the most radical in centuries, so radical, in fact, that Rome knew that churches and priests would be especially upset. So teams of people were sent out across the world to gather people together, to talk to them about the changes, to help them understand why they were being made. The reactions were like a firestorm, and the teams of presenters felt completely besieged and beaten down. One of the teams was led by a Jesuit priest named Father Jean Monahan. He was a terrific priest, a marvelous person, full of grace and good cheer. After several weeks of this, though, Father Monahan entered an auditorium beginning to, to, to talk about this again, wondering if he could go on. So as he entered, he walked to the podium, people began to notice he was barefoot. All he had on was a little whitewashed pair of shorts and an undershirt. That was it. He looked out at the room full of angry priests and he said, I am 58 years old. I have spent most of my adult life with my back turned to the congregation as I ministered to the altar, and now my church has turned around and faced the people. I have spent most of my adult life hiding among the incense pots and candles, doing my work as a priest, and now my church says to me, come out and be with the people. I have spent most of my adult life saying Mass in Latin, And now my church says, speak English. Speak so people can understand. And on and on he went, describing all the changes. And when he got to the end, he looked at the priest and said, I have nothing left. All my props, all the ways I've arranged my little controlled life are gone. Here you can see. I'm stripped. I'm stripped of everything I've known, everything I know how to do, all that was mine, all I have left is God. And so to save us, Jesus disrupted his disciples and he disrupted the crowds And he started by disrupting his family. And after each of these disruptions, he was able to offer precious, life-giving gifts to all of us. But this is so hard. A few years ago, there was a church in the Midwest that hired a consultant to help them review congregational practices and help them craft a vision for ministry in the future. The consultant worked with the session to create guided conversations and online surveys, and they had times of prayer together, and they, he spent a week observing all their ministry. 
When he finally emailed his report, everyone eagerly scrolled to the end of the conclusions and recommendations where they read, number one, quit thinking like a family. Somebody immediately picked up the phone and called the consultant and said, we're disturbed by your report. We don't think you understand our congregation. To which the consultant said, the purpose of a church is to transform both society and individuals to be more Christ-like. This concept goes way beyond family. Jesus knew that. We see it in the Gospels. We need to learn it over and over again. Jesus is not anti-family. In fact, Jesus is determined that we all have a family. Our human families, for all their virtues, are just too small, too confined to be the kingdom of God. God calls us to be subsumed into a family bigger and more demanding than the one into which we were born. And so, in Jesus' life and ministry, miles and miles and months and months after that Mark 3 encounter where he disrupted his family, he comes to the end of his life, and Jesus is still talking about family. John's gospel records the scene. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophis, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus, who disrupted family as he proclaimed God's kingdom, now creates a new family from the cross. That's it. That's everything. God disrupts, but God disrupts so God can create something deeper, something that will drive us in our need straight into the loving arms of God. Are you so sure of your life today? If you are, I promise you Jesus is already at work disrupting that for your sake and for God's sake. It is the most loving word any of us will receive from God today. Jesus came to disrupt, to say to hungry and stuck people, this doesn't have to be you. God has something bigger for you. This doesn't have to be us. God is already creating something in us so close to God's heart. This doesn't have to be you. But hang on. 